Welcome to another in our series of readings from the Times' Fourth Leaders. In 1958, it changed the title, actually, from Fourth Leaders to Mainly Personal, articles selected from the court page of the Times. That phrase, court page, is quite adorable. It's something the book collector would love to have. In the meantime, however, the nearest we will get to it is the following pieces, here read by James Fleming. Wrestling in Turkey, Ghost Ship Very Much Alive, and Mr. Ruskin's Tea Shop. Wrestling in Turkey Not far from Florence Nightingale's hospital at Scutari, nowadays called Uskudar, the Anatolian shore of the Bosphorus is mazed with a tangle of narrow streets leading away from the main street, which runs up from the landing stage of the vehicle ferry. In the midst of these, if you turn off to the left soon after leaving the ferry, may be heard the sound of a flute and drum which wail and tap a doleful accompaniment to a Turkish wrestling tournament. A gap in the row of old wooden houses is filled by a broken fence supplemented, rather inadequately, by a rough sackcloth screen, and beyond lies a rectangular open courtyard with an earthen floor. Round the walls, a few low wooden benches are set in the paltry shade of the surrounding trees, and on the ground, on top of the wall, on the benches, and even in the trees, stirs and fidgets a crowd of men and boys whose ages range from four to ninety-four. Among them, a small boy peddles quoits of bread, which he carries round on a stick, and the other vendors thrust their way round with ice cream, sweets and nuts. A few women watch coyly from the windows of surrounding houses, or climb on boxes to peer over the wall. In the middle of the yard, two or three pairs of wrestlers are couchant, rampant, or merely regardant, with their arms around each other's necks in a deceptively affectionate position. Between the groups, two referees wander, intervening on occasions which the crowd does not always consider appropriate, chasing off cheeky urchins, or withdrawing for the resolution of some technical argument to a panel of elders and ex-champions who stand at one end of the courtyard. For this is no mat and bell business like the modern wrestling which draws such ardent crowds to the sport and exhibition hall over on the European side of the Bosporus, but the old traditional Turkish wrestling which bears something of the same relation to it that real tennis bears to lawn tennis. Techniques and holds are necessarily different from those used in more familiar forms of wrestling. The wrestlers are covered from head to foot in oil, and many of the usual holds would find no purchase on their slippery bodies. The surest hold, often used for a final throw, is on the thonged waist of their tough leather breeches, which have been well soaked in water to keep them supple. Their hair is closely cropped, and their feet are bare. The afternoon's entertainment consists of a number of sets of matches, and when each lot has finished, a fresh batch of contestants comes on. After they have oiled themselves from a large tub over by the two-man band, they form up at one end of the yard, and accompanied by a decorous but atonal pavan on the flute, they go through a ceremonial dance, leaping in concert round the arena or kneeling on the ground to make obeisance. Then they pair off, and after performing a further ritual of salutation and gesture, 
which would make the boxer's touching of hands seem as uncivil as the preliminary back-arching of a couple of cats, they joined battle. But it is all Yavas! Yavas! Slowly, slowly, no hurry! The well-worn Turkish rebuff to anyone who tries to hustle. Two or three or four pairs of wrestlers struggle simultaneously in different parts of the yard, sidling into a position of advantage, springing back from a dangerous posture, slipping like snakes from the outstretched arms of their opponents, watching, waiting for an off-balance moment, straining to lift into the air many kilos of slippery power. Then a couple break off to allow one of them to wipe some grit from an eye, or there is a rebuke from one of the referees and a heated argument before the judges, with everyone gesticulating and trying to shout down everyone else. All the time, while the wrestling is on, the drummer and flautist keep up a steady rhythm or increase the tempo to a flurry of excruciating cadenza as one of the contests reaches its climax and the crowd leans forward to shout its encouragement and advice. The old man beating the drum never flags and the flautist, grasping his vertical instrument like a saxophone player, goes into ecstasies of virtuosity swaying above the waist and tapping his foot as if to tread himself to higher flights of fantasy. The wrestlers here are soon filthy, the oil on their bodies gathering up the dirt, mudded in patches where some well-meaning helper has scattered water from a can to try to lay the dust. The main championships, however, are held on grass, in the very west of Turkey in Europe, at Adrianople, the modern Edirne, where the proceedings are less cramped, and the spectators less likely to have their clothes smeared with oil when the wrestlers fling each other about on the edge of the arena. Some of the wrestlers appear more than once in the afternoon, perhaps for the fun of the thing, perhaps because they are in training, or perhaps because they hope for a larger share of the haul of small change which they collect afterwards from the crowd. One man gives extra value by handing round printed pamphlets with a photograph of himself in bathing costume rig of mat wrestling and a list of the titles he has won. Then, after receiving the congratulations or commiserations of their friends and advice for the next time from the experts, they gather up their clothes from a rudimentary dressing room behind a screen and depart to have a Turkish bath, which must surely have been invented for just such an occasion. Ghost Ship Very Much Alive Although my profession has nothing to do with the sea, except that it involves fairly frequent opportunities to travel by ship, I have always been interested in sailing boats and ships in all their variety. My school holidays were spent among the men and women of the last sailing ship-owning community in Britain on the southern shores of the Bristol Channel, and besides the motor schooners and catches of those boyhood days, I have sailed for a few enthralling weeks in two of the 40 or 50 square-rigged ships which still remain afloat. A year or two ago, I was travelling in a cargo steamer from Chittagong to Karachi, and we put into Colombo. We lay well out in the harbour, near the lighthouse at the end of the southern mole. It was a breezy, cool day, with a little sea outside and the wind blowing right across the entrance to the harbour. I was on the boat deck, when far out on the horizon, beyond the South Mole, I saw what was quite clearly the fore topsail and top gallant sail 
of a small, square-rigged ship. Through the glasses, she showed herself to be a brigantine, a two-masted ship with square sails on her foremast and a gaff topsail on her main. A beautiful rig for a small ship, which, because it is expensive in comparison with the schooner, went out of use in northern Europe fifty years ago. Yet this brigantine was not like the brigantines my boyhood friends had sailed in in their youth. There could be no doubt about it. I was looking at a ghost ship, something dredged up from another age. She had a deep single topsail of a shape and cut that put her back a hundred years or more. Her round bows and massive stem, with carved trailboards and figurehead, were of the 18th century, and above them was a short bowsprit and a great downward curving jib boom, nearly half as long as the ship herself, from which two white jib sails curved and arched, most inefficiently, but very beautifully, over a sea that was nearly royal blue. She cut through this sea with a little smother of foam at her bow, and her square sails shaped by the wind into mysterious plastic curves above. She was a ship to carry, if not apes and peacocks, at least spices, ivory, slaves, or opium for the forbidden markets of early 19th century China. As she came in through the harbour mouth and close under our stern, I saw that she had a short poop and a galley on deck in the classic pattern of a small sailing ship. One man was at her great open wheel, five others about her decks and rigging. Their seamanship was most impressive. A square-rigged ship does nothing to conceal the errors of those who handle her. But these last brown-skinned heirs to a thousand years of sailing history knew what they were about very well. The brigantine reached through the harbour mouth, hauled up on the starboard tack to beat halfway down the harbour, taking in her top-gallant sail as she did so, went about under the bows of a blue-funnel liner, beat across the fairway on the port tack, went about again, and then once more right in among the little group of Latin-rigged sailing craft from the Maldive Islands that lay at the head of the harbour and came up to an anchor among them without fault. It could not have been bettered in the days when the world was full of such ships. I learnt afterwards that she too came from the Maldives, and that her name was the Fart Urbar, which might be translated Glory of the Sea. As I saw her that fine May morning in Colombo, she could not have had a better name. To the best of my knowledge, she is still sailing out from the Maldives with cargoes of local products and back with the essentials for the island economy. Last year, she made a long voyage to Calcutta, which, with many calls, took her several months. It is possible that she may now be the world's last unsubsidised, purely cargo-carrying, square-rigged sailing ship without an auxiliary engine. There are plenty of square-rigged training ships, of course, but very few, if any, sailing merchantmen. There used to be a few Indian brigs and brigantines around the Bay of Bengal, and there were stories of an old British-built bark or two still sailing on the coasts of Chile and Peru just after the war. But I have not heard of any such ships for some years, and I fear there may be no others. So perhaps the title of the world's last square-rigged merchant sailing ship goes to the little wooden glory of the sea with her lovely antique rig and her most skilful crew. If so, 
She is an historic ship indeed. Mr. Ruskin's Tea Shop My dear Mr. Ruskin, wrote Octavia Hill one November from her home in Nottingham Place, off the Marylebone Road, to the man whose financial help had made possible the start of her housing ventures, I am sorry to write you of what I fear may trouble you, but there is no help for it. The lease of your house in Paddington Street expires at Christmas. The landlords, as is usual, claim that it shall be painted, pointed, etc. throughout. This is estimated to cost £104. I am trying to get some slight reduction, but I am not hopeful of success. I thought I ought at once to tell you of the probability of some such sum being needed. This letter, which has recently come into the possession of a member of the St. Marylebone Society, was written in 1885, eight years after the rift that had opened when some observations by Octavia Hill about Ruskin had been repeated to him in hurtful form, and rather more than two years before Ruskin owned to Sir Sidney Cockerell that he had misjudged his former pupil. Miss Hill writes cordially on a purely business topic, to one whom she never ceased to admire, even when most conscious of his failings. In the plain, straightforward terms of an excellent businesswoman, she proposes what should be done. I think it may save you trouble if I add, that unless I hear from you that you would wish anyone else to take up the business, I will carry it through, obtain any advice I feel I need, and decide for you to accept whatever best terms I can secure reporting to you simply the exact amount of cheque required when I know it. I much fear it will be £104. I am sure you will know that I am sorry, and also that I have done my best to manage as carefully and well as I could. Do not take the trouble to write, unless I shall do wrong in carrying on the negotiation of my own responsibility. You may be interested to know that the tenants have been very happy in the house. I hope you are well, and that much news of what is hopeful and good reaches you and brings you good cheer. Your house in Paddington Street. The number is not specified, but there can be no doubt that it was number 29, which for a brief period in 1874-75 to 75, was Mr. Ruskin's tea shop. One of those ill-fated enterprises in which Ruskin sought gallantly to prove that the world might really be made a better place to live in. Number 29 is still there, and little changed, though now it is a fruiterer's. Green-painted pillars of a strictly utilitarian mould support the window frontage. The shop stands at one corner of an unimpressive block of four, with three storeys of living quarters or storage space above the shops, the block being bounded on one side, we are not far from Baker Street, by Sherlock Mews. It is not picturesque, but it is number 29, and in Ruskin's time it had a sign painted by Arthur Severn, and in the window a set of fine old china bought at Siena. Why a tea shop? Ruskin told the story briefly in Fors Clavigera, and biographers have repeated it, but something may still be added. One need not be very old to remember the screw of tea that poor people used to buy at the grocer's, a pennyworth of tea or even hapeth wrapped in a screw of paper. The poor of Ruskin's time bought their tea in some such way, and the grocer could make a good thing out of it. Ruskin's object was to supply the poor of the neighbourhood with tea, 
quote, in packets as small as they chose to buy, without making a profit on the subdivision. It was, moreover, to be pure tea. Adulteration was in fact very much in the news. Large quantities of tea that had lately been seized had proved to be impure. Grocers, when prosecuted, had protested that the tea was adulterated before it reached them, and wholesale dealers had pleaded that the impurities were added before the tea left China. This was true enough, though the Times was not impressed by the argument, since the wholesalers, it pointed out, had abundant opportunities of discovering whether their produce was genuine or not. Lai tea, the Chinese called it, and according to a medical man, in a letter to the Times it was faced or coated with black lead and might contain anything from sand and stony particles to silica and magnetic oxide of iron. The vestry of St. Marylebone and similar bodies in other parts of the country had memorialised the Board of Trade, asking for measures to stop the importation of such adulterated food. The customs authorities had discovered what they seemed to regard as insuperable practical difficulties in the way of such control, but the Marylebone vestry was not convinced, nor was the Times. This was the atmosphere in which Ruskin started his shop. He installed two old servants of his mother's in it, Harriet and Lucy Tovey. They figure in Praetorita. Lucy is our perennial parlour-maid who came to us in 1828, remaining with us till 1875, and Harriet as a scarcely less permanent fixture. It is in Harriet's name that number 29 appears in the old rate books of Marylebone in 1874 and 1875. The rates in the first year were four shillings in the pound. They had risen in the following year to four and threepence. There was dreadful poverty in the neighbourhood, but the poor did not rush to Ruskin's shop. The result of this experiment, he wrote towards the end of 1874, has been my ascertaining that the poor only like to buy their tea where it is brilliantly lighted and eloquently ticketed. And as I resolutely refuse to compete with my neighbouring tradesmen either in gas or rhetoric, the patient subdivision of my parcels by the two old servants of my mother's, who manage the business for me, hitherto passes little recognised as an advantage by my uncalculating public. Also, steady increase in the consumption of spirits throughout the neighbourhood faster and faster slackens the demand for tea. Meanwhile, the business languishes and the rent and taxes absorb the profits. And something more, after the salary of my good servants has been paid. The venture was abandoned in 1875 when Harriet Tovey suffered her last illness. Ruskin then arranged, after perhaps a brief interval, that Octavia Hill should manage the property for him, and her name appears in the rate book from 1876 to 1885, the year of that letter to Ruskin. In 1885, one Alfred Waters is given as the occupier of a part, and a street directory of 1884 puts Alfred Waters down as a tea dealer. So that, apparently, the tea tradition did not die at once, though faced with no doubt powerful competition from the Apollo Tavern, listed in that old directory as being at number 28, and still, like number 29, in situ. It is not far from Paddington Street to Garbutt Place, which, as Paradise Place, was the first property that Octavia Hill managed, 
after it had been acquired with funds provided by Ruskin. And one of the first things Octavia Hill did in Paradise Place was to buy a chest of tea and sell it to the tenants at a profit smaller than a shop would have taken. That was about the beginning of 1865. Was that the germ of the tea shop idea? Tune in next week for another Book Collector podcast. And in the meantime, visit www.thebookcollector.co.uk to read online articles, view booksellers' catalogues, and subscribe to our journal. It's less than the price of a Netflix subscription and far more valuable. You can receive four beautiful quarterly issues, plus get access to our entire digital archive, 70 years of erudite articles, illustrations, reviews, news, obituaries, auction reports, and more. Everything you could want to know about book collecting. Whether you're researching, learning, or just browsing for fun, it's the place to go. Visit www.thebookcollector.com. .co.uk today.